Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 6, The Tariff of Abominations, The Constitutional Crisis of 1832. Now that we've gone over a wide array of topics relating to the big changes in American society that occurred in the antebellum era, and observed who lived there and what they were doing, we're ready to dive into the exciting world of pre-Civil War tax rates. What? Look, I promise you war, and by the end of this episode, we're going to have a furious national protest, a near-insurrection by an armed, organized South Carolina militia, and a newly elected president from the western states threatening to crush the rebellion and bring order to the nation. It'll only take about 30 more years and significant cultural, political, and economic changes to reach the actual cannons blazing in Charleston Harbor part of the story. The reason for the delay is because, as always, history flows. It doesn't just start in one place, and the Civil War's roots go very deep indeed. As I will show, the dawn of the conflict strangely began at the same place, but in an argument over taxation and the relative role of government and society. Although taxes themselves weren't the whole issue either, quite similar to the American Revolution in its own day. Instead, the true war of words and ideas began in earnest long before the bombardment of Fort Sumter in 1861. More bizarrely indeed, today's story only tangentially involves slavery at all, but it will result in one man creating an entire ideology around slavery, which will spread like a plague throughout many southern states. The road to a shattered nation began with little more than the desire of one man to keep his hand in the political game. In 1828, a tariff bill went through Congress, forged by the considerable acumen of Senator Martin Van Buren of New York. Instead of explaining his life in its entirety, for now just understand that Van Buren was among the most cunning politicians in American history, and the bill he wrote proved it. A tariff, if you don't know, is a kind of tax that applies specifically to goods being imported or exported, and the particular tariff that Van Buren created was designed to do one thing massively favor the newly developing industrialization of the northern states. Why did Van Buren want this? Well, while he may have viewed it as being to the long-term advantage of the United States, he was from New York, of course, he most certainly viewed it as being to the long-term advantage of one Martin Van Buren. The good senator had allied himself closely to the rising star of Andrew Jackson, but he needed to deliver votes in order to set Jackson up for a victory in the upcoming presidential election. Andrew Jackson, as a military hero and slave-owning gentleman living in Tennessee, could easily defeat the northern-born and somewhat aloof John Quincy Adams in most southern states. But with the tariff bill in his pocket and Van Buren at his side, Jackson could, and soon would, also claim the majority vote in the crucial states of Pennsylvania and New York as well as the entire Midwest. Jackson gained the political advantage from his allies' tariff while taking on none of the costs, and Van Buren gained a powerful patron so that he, too, paid no political price. The only downside became, well, became the tariff itself. The tariff of 1828 installed cripplingly high rates, and while northern industrialists were booming, to the point that estimated GDP increased 20% in only 40 years. The tariff seriously wounded much of the export-oriented southern economy in turn, 
You see, Britain and France reduced imports of southern goods in response, including but not limited to cotton, while imported European manufacturers doubled in price. A great many southerners were not happy with this state of affairs, and they had a genuine cause for their fury. This was, after all, not too dissimilar to treating large sections of the nation as economic colonies for the benefit of the industrialist class. But for the next few years, this issue boiled only slowly. Meanwhile, President Jackson and his vice president, John C. Calhoun, took office in 1829, and the two appeared, by all accounts, to be fairly close politically and had a strong working relationship. Yet history sometimes turns on the strangest of events, and in this case, we see a very strange turning indeed, which broke the Jackson administration in half. And yes, this story is utterly ridiculous, but so it goes. Basically, the story of the so-called petticoat affair develops like this. Andrew Jackson encouraged his friend, Secretary of War John Eaton, to pursue a romantic relationship with the recently widowed Peggy Timberlake, nay O'Neill. This is a little hard to explain now, but Jackson very much acted as a kind of family patriarch. To him, he was simply helping to improve the lives of people as close as family and further their happiness. It did cause a minor scandal, however, because Peggy Timberlake had been widowed far too recently for a second marriage, at least to be in good taste according to the rarefied concerns of the political elite in Washington. Additionally, there were all manner of rumors that she was no woman of virtue, although history offers a little clue if any part of this was more than just petty gossip of bored matrons. The rough-hume Andrew Jackson probably wouldn't have cared either way, and it appears that Eaton was indeed quite taken with Mrs. Timberlake, and the two indeed married shortly thereafter. The matter should have died there, except that John C. Calhoun's wife, Florida, intervened to carry matters onward. It turns out that she really, really didn't like Peggy Eaton. She disliked the newly married Mrs. Eaton so much that Mrs. Calhoun actually formed an entire anti-Peggy faction among the ladies of society. The Eatons were now effectively cast out of the entire social circle of Washington, with nearly every wife of every high-ranking official shunning the Eatons publicly. This may all sound ridiculous, and it kind of sort of was, the consequences turned out to be deadly serious. Specifically, said consequences were that Andrew Jackson was pissed. Just to make sure we all understand, Andrew Jackson was, for better or for worse, not a man that anybody messed with without paying the price. Andrew Jackson, as president, got ambushed by a would-be assassin, and his entourage, which included, and I am not making this up, the legendary frontiersman Davy Crockett, had to intervene to stop Jackson from beating the man to death. Apart from his penchant for destroying threats and obstacles in any way available, Jackson's domineering streak ran a mile wide, and he was not about to accept the slightest insult from his own vice president, especially given that Calhoun was the well-bred coastal elite that Jackson, quite frankly, disliked as a matter of general principle. But in the case of the Eatons, Calhoun defended his wife's actions, and in doing so, he implicitly spit in Jackson's eye, or so Jackson saw it. Again, Johnson acted like a family patriarch, and in his eyes, John C. Calhoun and his wife were acting like spoiled youngins defying their elders out of spite. This was not something Jackson could, or ever would, tolerate, 
And the fact that Calhoun was being pushed forward as an alternative presidential candidate in the 1832 elections probably didn't help. Our old friend Van Buren, on the other hand, proved so loyal to Jackson that the president made sure he ended up selected as vice president next round. Calhoun actually played a part in his own humiliation here, for after all the trouble he caused for himself, he also cast a tie-breaking vote, as vice president, against Van Buren's nomination as minister to Great Britain. Although that position held considerable prestige, it would have removed Van Buren from the political scene. In fact, the pettiness of this act convinced quite a few others that Calhoun had become a miserable, vicious creature, and later aided Van Buren's rise to the office of president itself, which would always evade Calhoun's reach or grasp. Now, concurrently to all this domestic mess, the tariff crisis had been brewing for years in South Carolina, and here Calhoun also played a prominent role. Quite a few of the state's leaders were boiling over with rage stemming from the tax problems, and many of those barbs were being flung in Calhoun's direction. John C. Calhoun had, after all, supported the tariff that was hurting Southern commerce. In his defense, he claimed, and there is some amount of evidence to support this, that his vote was a strategic play to force a tariff bill to the table that the Western states could not accept, and then combine them and the South into a formidable political bloc similar to the one which propelled Jackson personally into the White House. For obvious reasons, South Carolina's leaders didn't exactly accept that logic, particularly because Calhoun had previously been well known as a proponent of a national outlook over a sectional or local one in Jeffersonian terms. However, this would change radically over the winter of 1828 to 1829, as Calhoun not only protected his political flank, but emerged as the champion of localism. For now, Calhoun still planted his flag permanently within the American tradition, as well as the existing constitutional ideology, but the brewing crisis soon threatened to tear that very flag in half. Calhoun's new tack proposed a novel political idea, perhaps even an entire ideology. He and his new allies now made two major claims publicly expressed in his exposition and protest document released in December of 1828. First, Calhoun held that tariffs ought to be decided for revenue and not for political purposes, the latter of which included the fostering of industry over commerce or agriculture. This was not an uncommon view in early America, although it was often difficult to tell exactly where revenue ended and politics began, and, well, that's basically just an endless circular argument. Most Americans might agree in principle that tariff for revenue would be lower than protectionism, but the line appeared awfully blurry to begin with. Although this became a minor recurring issue in politics, it wasn't the most significant point. For a second issue, Calhoun proposed a far more radical measure. This principle was that states could individually, and not merely collectively, judge the constitutionality of a federal act. While this point was based to some degree in the ideology of the revolution, his suggestion that any state could nullify a national action pushed the most radical boundaries even within South Carolina. The idea was never broadly accepted in any quarter of the country, although it did have a certain populist appeal, and this would give the looming crisis its name, nullification. Note, however, that essentially no other political faction in the country accepted the idea, and it was to deliberately step away from this notion that Americans adopted the Constitution over the Articles of Confederation. 
For the next few years, the debate raged, but mostly inside of the state, for there was no agreement even internally over the course it should choose, how South Carolinians should manage such a course once decided, or exactly how far they ought to go. The national faction fought hard, but eventually was leveraged out of power across most of the state. It was becoming increasingly clear, however, that a movement inside of South Carolina could have serious repercussions on the federal government, or even the Union itself. It was, after all, a wealthy state, and one in a prime physical and ideological location to greatly influence the developing Lower South. At the same time, South Carolina didn't really have any clear goals beyond the immediate crisis, nor did they apparently conceive of any goals or imagine the implications of this idea. In pushing the idea of nullification forward, they challenged the existence of any central government, but did not really have any idea about what could or would replace it. Now against this backdrop, President Jackson made a startling statement. Startling to some, anyway, because he was, of course, both a southerner and, in theory, held many of the same values as Calhoun. Yet Jackson saw value in the Union as a whole. He had emerged from remote and rural Carolina backcountry to, more or less literally, sneer at the British in the Revolutionary War, and fought against the Union Jack in the War of 1812 as well. Yet he traveled extensively throughout the South and West and had made his fame and fortune in New Orleans and Tennessee, and was not about to bend his will to the obnoxiously, if well-mannered, rich snobs in Charleston simply because they didn't get their British baubles at a cheap price. Famously, at a ball honoring Jefferson's birthday, South Carolina Senator Robert Hayne offered a dangerously divisive toast to the sovereignty of each state. Jackson's famous reply at Goodback, Our Federal Union, it must be preserved. The gauntlet had been thrown down, but Calhoun would immediately take it up by offering his own toast. The Union, next to our liberty, most dear. Now, I will bring back up that word liberty again, because that held a somewhat specific and perhaps dangerous meaning for Calhoun himself. Regardless, and fittingly, given the moment and setting, this ideological conflict occurs in the context of Jeffersonianism, representing two divergent branches of theory about the nature and significance of early popular democracy. Andrew Jackson, older and perhaps more worldwise, drew support from a wide array of Americans and perhaps never viewed himself primarily as a citizen of any one state. Calhoun's narrower vision reflects his history as an inhabitant of South Carolina only as well as bringing to mind the point that government and freedom may be in tension even in the very best of times. There the matter lay for two years, but then the tariff bill of 1832 lowered taxes on imported goods. While this did push things in the direction of the South Carolinians wanted, it did not change the fact that the bill still overly favored the manufacturing interest, at least according to their opinion, and had been written by none other than the former president, John Quincy Adams. He was not exactly the most popular man in South Carolina to begin with. Later in 1832, a complicated dance began which resulted in several South Carolina politicians swapping jobs. Calhoun would end up representing the state in Congress, while Senator Hayne resigned that seat in order to take up the governorship. This arrangement suited the growing pro-nullification faction, and, it was felt, played to the strengths of each man. Calhoun could argue passionately on a national stage, while Haines' political skill could more easily marshal South Carolina's government into controlled action. 
Governor Hayne then called the Nullification Convention into session into November 1832. At the convention, the Nullification faction proposed a new idea. They would allow people to pay the tariff if they wanted. But merchants could alternatively place their goods into customer storage and obtain a quote-unquote bond from the customs official without paying any money for it immediately. The plan was that South Carolina would let any merchant sue for their goods, still with no tariff paid, in state, not federal, court, and fine any customs official who didn't turn them over. Of course, the state courts themselves might look awfully suspiciously at the legality of this plan, so the convention simply required that all new officials take an oath to support nullification. To back this with force, South Carolina began a program to raise a substantial militia, heavily armed with northern-made weaponry, a step which very easily could be viewed as active in overt deeds of sedition and treason. This was most likely too clever a plan by half, and it neither fooled anyone nor shifted the issue. On the surface, it aimed to accomplish an end run around the issue of tariffs with a legalistic veneer, but the rhetoric on display, as well as the blatant threats played with by South Carolina, did not sit well with the western states or even many southern ones. However much Calhoun could argue, and he really could, he was up against a mighty coalition of opposition, including former President Madison, as well as Andrew Jackson himself, Daniel Webster, and Henry Clay. On March 1st, 1833, Congress forced through the Force Bill, giving Jackson full authority to, well, forcefully enforce the law by military force. In the face of this, South Carolina and Calhoun knew the game was up and began to back down. Yet, South Carolina managed a degree of face-saving victory even in the teeth of complete defeat, because the Congressional Workhorse Clay recognized that some honey was required alongside the vinegar. Accordingly, on the 2nd of March, Congress passed the Compromise Tariff of 1833. This might not have been everything the South Carolinians still wanted, but it was a substantial step towards addressing their concerns and represented a significant concession towards agricultural interests. Accordingly, South Carolina, facing down Jackson's wrath on one hand, and with the promise of a much better commercial environment on the other, finally accepted the inevitable nine days later, after symbolically declaring nuh-uh by voting to nullify the force bill itself, a gesture which did not impress anyone. Now, I will point out a word here that I basically avoided in this talk. Slavery. And I avoided it because slavery had nothing directly to do with the nullification crisis. The weave of states' rights ideology and secessionism is a topic for another day, because it belongs in the future. Although I will clarify now that as an idea, it was often given more lip service than serious respect, even within the Confederacy. However, John C. Calhoun... He is, and remains, important with a capital I. He would continue to spread his vision or view of society over the next generation, and he would have no small success in doing so, even though he never accomplished the work of warping the nation to his framework within his lifetime. The nullification crisis should therefore be seen as the first inadvertent tremor of the Civil War, and we see here the foundation of much evil. A slight turn by a few different men might, in this hour, have changed the destiny of the Republic.
Instead, Calhoun arguably invented the idea of a separate southern civilization, and he identified the key aspect which made it so, slavery. My view is that he did this essentially in order to gather allies for the future. After all, he had just seen what happened when South Carolina went off on its own. But additionally, in Calhoun's imagination, African Americans could never, ever become his equal. And if we're being honest, the reason is simply that he found it dreadfully inconvenient. That is, he worked his logic backwards. Calhoun wanted to protect slavery so that some men, men an awful lot like John C. Calhoun, could spread their beneficent brilliance over American society. Calhoun wrote a great deal about liberty, but we should understand this as an abstract, almost mystical concept, which he divorced, unwittingly or not, from the actual freedom of human beings. He rushed to pass judgment upon people he hardly understood, and by a miraculous coincidence always found them inferior and subject to his will. His concept of liberty was, as I mentioned before in an earlier episode, a positive attribute of those with money and leisure. It was the freedom of a Roman emperor, the citizenship of a powerful or wealthy Spartiate. However, Calhoun's first great opportunity to spread this ideology ironically came from a place nowhere near South Carolina at all, but instead far off Texas. And it began with desire for liberty by a very different group of people. Join us next time when we discover the Texas Revolution. Thank you for joining today, and I hope you'll come back for the American Civil War podcast.